Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Sunday, October 17th, 2021. The Hubbard and O'Brien Podcast works weekends. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm Professor of Economics at Lehigh University. Uh, joining me as always is Glenn Hubbard, Professor of Finance and Economics at Columbia University. How are you today, Glenn? Great, Tony. How are you? Doing very well. Doing very Good. well. Glenn, you know, in the last few podcasts, we've talked a lot about monetary policy. So I think today we can turn to talking some about, at least beginning, uh, to talk about fiscal policy. As you know, there are a couple of big spending bills that Congress is currently debating, talking about. And um, one of them is devoted to what's sometimes called hard infrastructure bridges and uh, highways and perhaps expanding the Amtrak passenger train service. So it looks like about a trillion dollars is in the bill to spend on those kinds of infrastructure projects. So I thought we could step back and maybe think about the basics. What do we know about the contribution that infrastructure can make to economic growth? And then maybe just as a, a quick follow-up, is this particular bill focusing on the right types of infrastructure? Well, it's a great question, uh, Tony. From an economic perspective, I think what we know at the beginning is that the word infrastructure must refer to some underlying investments that ultimately enhance our productivity. Uh, roads and bridges potentially come to mind. Uh, anything that having to do with airports and ports generally, all of that. The question though is beyond that simple notion, what do we know about previous big investments in infrastructure and their actual effect on productivity or other outcomes? And the evidence is, is mixed. I think it's fair to say that if you break it down into issues, the it's, it's easier to focus. So one key issue is project selection. What's the mechanism for choosing projects? And I think there, things that are more devolved to state and local levels and have uh, strong links between the public sector and the private sector tend to be more successful. Another issue is the funding for infrastructure. Not all infrastructure has to be funded publicly. We, we know that some highways are privately owned. The question is figuring out what should be federal funding, i.e., if you think about it in finance terms for the riskiest part of a project, and then what projects might be able to be sustained by user fees, uh, at, least, uh, at least in part. Another big issue beyond money is regulation. We know that a lot of what has slowed down infrastructure projects and made them more costly, you know, here in New York City, the subway is a great example of that, has been uh, regulatory burdens. And while regulation obviously is needed in many areas, if we're going to have a big infrastructure agenda, we have to ask ourselves, are we impeding in any way effective project selection and, and management? So I think if we think about what is infrastructure, how do we think about financing, and then how do we think about regulation, then we have an infrastructure agenda. Saying we need to spend a trillion dollars or whatever the number is on infrastructure without asking those questions, at least from an economic perspective, leaves me a little cool. What do you think? 
Yeah, you make some very good points. One of the things that I was thinking about the other day, and I think you may be familiar as well with an article that Bill Duper, who is at the uh, St. Louis Fed, published recently. And as, as you were saying, the, the funding for infrastructure is often complicated. And even though we think of these kinds of bills in Congress as being, well, Congress decides to spend a trillion dollars, in fact, Congress, the federal government doesn't directly produce much infrastructure. There's some, the Army Corps of Engineers will build dams and levees and things like that. And we saw, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, a, a lot of money was put into the uh, New Orleans area, Louisiana and, and um, Southern Mississippi. And even though Hurricane Ida was, um, was devastating to parts of that uh, area, it was probably probably would have been worse without the, the work that the Army Corps of Engineers had done. But that's unusual. Most of the infrastructure spending is actually state and local, uh, as you mentioned. So uh, when we talk about bridges and highways, it's usually a state department of transportation that actually figures out, well, you know, which bridges shall we um, shall we renovate? Do we need to, to in fact, replace some? Do we need to add a bridge here? Do we need to, uh, you know, expand a highway there? It's usually done by them, by, by the state departments of transportation. And they usually are the ones who actually hire the construction crews that, that do the work. And so this article by Bill Duper is very interesting because he looked at the last time we'd had one of these big infrastructure bills, and that was back in 2009. We're, of course, coming out of the Great Recession, 2007, 2009. Um, when President Obama took office in, in 2009, he wanted to have a big increase in, uh, in, in spending, and including on infrastructure. And um, you may remember at the time, there was a lot of talk about shovel-ready projects that you know, <laughs> President Obama said, well, you know, don't, don't tell me that uh, you might put another bridge over the Lehigh River, say, uh, uh, two or three years from now after you get the permits and everything. I want stuff that can, uh, that can be um, put the spending can happen right now. And what Duper found, though, very interestingly, is he looked at what did we actually get in terms of infrastructure from the tens of billions of dollars that were, at, that were um, appropriated by Congress in that bill. And the answer was almost nothing. He said that you, if you looked at the ratings of bridges on how, uh, how likely they are to fall down or what repairs they need, that didn't really change. We didn't get more miles of highway construction. We didn't even hire more construction workers. So what happened to all that money? And it, it's interesting that apparently what happened was that the states said to Congress, well, thank you very much for these billions of dollars. We have these shovel-ready projects. They're so shovel-ready, we were going to build them anyway. And we were going to use state funds to build them. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll spend the federal money on that. We'll take the the money we otherwise would have spent ourselves and we'll spend it on other things. So uh, um, just to kind of finish that up, there's sort of two things going on there. On one hand, to the extent that infrastructure itself was the, the emphasis, then you can say we got little or nothing out of it. But on the other hand, to the extent that it was a pure fiscal policy action, so as we talk about in the book that, you know, in that particular period, residential construction had declined dramatically and the federal government tried to um, restore some of that lost aggregate demand through spending. 
the money did get spent. It just didn't get spent on infrastructure. States took it and gave it to school districts or you know, expanded state parks or, or did whatever they did with it. So it's a really interesting point that as you, you say, the funding of these things is complicated and in the details of the funding, um, sometimes things turn out to be different than what Congress had intended. And you make a good point as well about, this is something I think that people on both sides of the aisle worry about, that the United States has not been terribly efficient in its infrastructure spending. So, um, you know, we, there was supposed to be a bullet train linking Los Angeles and San Francisco, and that was uh, spending for that began in 2008 and was all supposed to be completed by last year. And as of now, the, there's only one small part of it from Merced to Bakersfield. People know the, uh, the geography of California. Those are two Central Valley cities and they're quite nice cities, but there aren't all that many people in Bakersfield who wanna quickly get to Merced and vice versa. And even that section apparently won't open until 2029. So it's, a, it, it's an important issue, as you point out, maybe that needs more attention of how do we end up managing the uh, spending that we're going to allocate? How do we manage to, to do it efficiently? Uh, how do we manage to maybe get the permitting system to go more rapidly and uh, to think through actually how we build these things? Okay, well, maybe we can, we can move on from infrastructure to another issue that's much in the news, and that is what's going on with supply chains. And it occurred to me the other day that prior to the pandemic, reading through the Wall Street Journal, maybe you'd find like one story in there that might mention supply chains, whereas you open the paper today, you look at it online, there might be 10 or 20 stories on supply chain. So here we are maybe a year and a half after the beginning of the pandemic. And I went to the grocery store the other day and there, there was not much bottled water on the shelf. Uh, I dropped my wife's car off at the dealership to be serviced and they didn't have many cars there to available for people to buy. So why is it that we're still having supply chain problems so long into the pandemic? I think the topic of supply chain, uh, Tony, is a great one. And right now, the, the public is fixated, which means for we economists, this is a great time uh, for us to be talking about it. It's definitely going to be on students' minds. You know, in the past few decades prior to the pandemic, we had become so efficient in the business sector. The idea was that supply chains were seamless. They were global. Uh, they always worked. And of course, that's true until they don't. I, I remember some years ago, uh, I had as a guest when I taught a class in Hong Kong in one of our programs, a gentleman named Victor Fung, who's a prominent business person in Hong Kong. And he was describing, he held up a men's shirt. And he said, look, this shirt basically had 17 countries worth of labor. And the supply chain to produce a shirt that winds up on the shelf here in New York or in Hong Kong or some other city is very, very complicated. He was telling it as a story about the benefits of globalization, but it's really about supply chains. Now, of course, I say all this because supply chains are about managing trade-offs, right? I can choose to make a product in one place or another. It's about efficiency, costs, all the things we talk about in the book. 
And I think businesses have started to realize the supply chains weren't that resilient to shocks. And so if something happens far up in the supply chain, it shuts down everything in between. So your car's example, it's particular parts that might be missing that might stop the production of an entire automobile. So I think it really helps us think about trade-offs. We're in an economy that is reallocating. People are wanting to buy different things and in different bundles than they had before. And it's taking the supply chain uh, a while to catch up. Now, for us as economists, this is interesting because it's a real chance to talk about supply shocks in a new and interesting way. You know, formally, when we teach this in class, you know, you talk about oil price changes and things like that. But this, too, is a kind of supply shock. So it's a way to illustrate that in class. It's also a way to point out that some of our policy tools, like monetary policy that influence aggregate demand, aren't really so spot on here. If the problems are on the supply side, if they're on the supply side, we have to figure out what does it take to get people back to work in their jobs? What does it take to restart supply chains? So economics is important, but so too is operations management and operations research. So that all of this is on consumers' minds as well as business people is very telling. And I think the goal for policy and for those of us in economics is to try to get it resolved before it becomes so hardwired into the vocabulary, we wind up with a more inflationary regime than we had before. What do you think? Yeah, those are, are excellent points. You know, you were talking about how people may have changed the, the things that they're doing, the things that they're buying. There has been some interesting um, discussion of the fact that if you look at retail sales, that goods sales have been increasing relative to service sales. You know, we've had this long-term trend in the United States and, and most high-income countries where we've been buying more services and fewer goods over time. But we've had a, a surge in buying of goods and it's unclear whether this is a sort of a temporary thing both by consumers and by businesses, or whether it's something that the supply chains will have to adapt to. There was um, a, an article in the Wall Street Journal, I think is where I read it, where someone was saying as well, you, you mentioned how inventory practices had gotten very uh, skinny with the so-called just-in-time system that originated many years ago with Toyota of companies saying, well, rather than have warehouses full of parts, we're, we're better off if we have the parts arrive just as we need to incorporate them in the car or whatever it is. And um, somebody was commenting that one of the things that might be clogging up the supply lines is that companies have, have moved away from what he called just in time to just in case that having been burned by some of these supply problems, they're saying, well, you know, Maybe we need to go back to warehousing more of these parts. And so you could have, a, it, it's almost an analogy in some ways to what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic for consumer products, where one of the reasons why toilet paper was hard to get was that essentially the, the inventory that had been on the supermarket shelves was now in people's pantries and basements and closets and things. And so we could be seeing something of that going on as well, that companies have taken inventories that they would not 
previously have been holding themselves and they've decided, well, you know, we, we better do this because if you're Ford or somebody, you don't want to shut down the assembly line because this part, as you mentioned, is unavailable. Let, let's in fact incur the cost of having those parts. The inflation, maybe, maybe one other point that uh, I was reading a couple of people talking about that's interesting with respect to inflation and looking at services. And um, I saw this first, Alan Cole, who's an economist who has a, uh, a blog, maybe we can link to that when we post this. And he was pointing out that there's been uh, a deterioration in services, like many restaurants have trouble hiring enough servers. So you're used to being served within 20 minutes, maybe you're served within 30 minutes and you walked in wanting to uh, order the raviolis and they've taken them off the menu. You have to have the spaghetti because they need to, you know, they have fewer chefs and the chefs have to concentrate on just a few things. Or he was pointing out that I guess he was traveling and he stopped in a hotel and normally they have this big free breakfast uh, where you get omelets and pancakes, whatever you want. And he went down and what they had were only the little cardboard boxes of cereal. And so his point was that in terms of how you think about the Bureau of Labor Statistics recording these prices, they're basically, even if that hotel didn't increase its prices or the restaurant didn't increase its prices, you actually are getting less quality. So typically we're looking at you know, the same product and seeing what the price change was. So in effect, there might be some sort of hidden inflation here. The inflation might be higher than we think because at least in some services, we're actually getting less than we did before for the, for the same price. So uh, do you expect then, you know, there's been a lot of discussion. We, we've talked about this previously when we talked about how the Fed has been um, trying to uh, decide whether the inflation we've seen is transitory or whether it's, um, it's inflation has ratcheted up to a higher level than their, their target of 2%. Do you expect that to the extent these supply chain problems are contributing to the current high inflation, do you think that in fact these problems will be straightened out so that this time next year, there would be back to only one article in the Wall Street Journal on supply chains? I'm not sure about this time next year, but I think it's clear that the meaning of the word transitory isn't just evanescent. It's our period, but right. it's not just a few months or, or even a year. But I think the lesson that may be absorbed less well, perhaps by central banks, is that does it make sense to keep promoting demand so much with monetary policy uh, in this environment? So, for example, the Fed continues to buy mortgage-backed securities when housing prices are on a tear. We're still buying bonds. So while tapering is being discussed, I think the focus needs to be on supply chains. Now, of course, the problem is that's not a monetary policy problem, you know, getting people back into their jobs, restarting supply chains, but that's really where the attention needs to be. So I think there is a risk that inflationary expectations take off. But there's also a very good chance that the Fed is right. This will be transitory, albeit more than a few months, and things will go back to normal perhaps two years from now in the Wall Street Journal. Right. Okay, great, Glenn. Let me just remind our listeners to keep checking our blog at hubbardobrieneconomics.com where we periodically post new content. We'll post links to some of the uh, papers and blogs and things that we referenced today. 
You can subscribe to the blog to receive email alerts about new posts. We also have a Twitter account, which you can find by searching on the site for Hubbard O'Brien Economics. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard O'Brien Economics podcast. We'll see you next time.